what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm AC Rowe. This is The Doc Project. As we ease into winter, or depending on where you are in the country, thump into winter, there's a growing feeling that while there are some people we haven't seen in forever, there are others who are there all the time. Those we live with. Remember back before the pandemic when our family members and roommates used to just be there when we woke up and went to sleep? Maybe they were around for dinner and the occasional weekend. But now, they're right there, talking loudly into their headsets, on their competing Zoom meetings, with their competing background music. In my household, we're figuring it out. But there is someone who never leaves me alone. When I eat, he watches me. When I take my bath, my one sliver of private time, I see his shadow outside the door, waiting. It starts from the moment I wake up, when the first thing I see as I blearily open my eyes are his, staring back at me, as he breathes hotly onto my face and waits with uncanny precision for me to yawn so he can sneeze directly into my open mouth. I am, of course, talking about my dog, Tusk. Tusk does not bark, so he can't say hello that way. But here are the sounds of his little stalker claws on the floor. The pandemic's effect on pets and our relationship with them, it's been something to marvel at. In March, in New York City, amidst the shortages of toilet paper and hand sanitizer, pet foster and adoption agencies ran out of dogs and cats as applications surged tenfold. So many people who, before the pandemic, had been on the fence about getting a dog, climbed over that fence and into a dog park. And it's a great time to be a pet. Tusk, in a rampant display of insensitivity, loves the pandemic. For him, it's a veritable buffet of walks, belly rubs, treats, and mouth sneezes. The pandemic is bringing us closer than ever to the people and pets we live with, while at the same time leaving many completely isolated. Today on The Doc Project, two stories about COVID and companionship. Coming up, Reporter Bob Keating and his dog, Layla, visit a senior's home in Nelson, B.C. And Bob discovers firsthand what happens when that companionship is taken away. But first, producer Jennifer Yoon would like to introduce you to somebody. Ladies and gentlemen, making her national debut on Canadian Public Radio, it is my sincere pleasure to introduce... 
Dusty Springfield. My cat. It was hard for us humans when the world shut down due to the pandemic, but not for Dusty Springfield. She began living her best life. And she's got eight more than you and I. Dusty doesn't like to be alone. What kind of day have you had, Dusty? She craves the spotlight, an adoring audience. If she had it her way, she'd have her housemates around all the time, doting on her, showering her with affection and love. Dusty gets anxious when she's not getting adequate attention from her entourage. Her entourage being me and my partner, Colin. Hi. Dusty is a very jealous cat. So why did I name my cat Dusty Springfield? She's a singer, just like her namesake. But even more than her human counterpart, Dusty embodies the name. Her gray coat makes her look like a little moving dust ball as she toddles around the apartment. She, um, she meows more than any other cat that I've met in my life. Living with the singing cat was an adjustment for my partner, Colin. She's kind of like a, uh, a, a toy, or it's like a game, I guess. Uh, because like, the longer you go without petting her, the louder she'll get. And then when you pet her, she'll just be immediately silent, even mid-meow. Colin wasn't used to having a mouth to feed. Yeah, I didn't even have plants before we moved in. Like, <laughs> I, I, I didn't really want... I, I was like, oh, well, you know, if I, like, am gone from my apartment for a week, nothing's going to die because there's nothing that's, that's alive. So it's like, it's fine. So it's, it's a different kind of level of responsibility, I guess. But the truth is, Dusty was just one adjustment among many for both of us when we moved in together, right before the country went into lockdown. It was also the first time for either of us living with a significant other. All of a sudden, we were, the three of us, trapped inside the same apartment. No going to work, no going out to see friends, just me, Colin, and my loud, needy Dusty. Wow. And with the global pandemic going on out there, and us stuck in here, she can demand our attention 24-7. In Dusty's world, there's no right to privacy. Why would you ever need a moment away from her? Dusty, can I... Can I, can I Don't think just because nature calls, for example, that you can shut her out. Can I, can I go to the bathroom, please? In case you're having difficulty with Dusty's mother tongue, here's a little language lesson. Translation? Where are you going? Why are you locking me out? Or when my boyfriend and I are hugging in the kitchen. I don't, this is weird. <laughs> meaning, why aren't you paying attention to me? Or when we come back after leaving the apartment for any reason, like getting the groceries or going for a walk. How was your day, Dusty? That's felineese for, why did you abandon me? Dusty and I have been cat-human buddies for about two years now. 
Back then, I was fostering cats, giving them a temporary home until they got adopted. Dusty was my third foster. She was still young when I met her, just a teenager in cat years. But already, she'd walked the mean streets of Montreal. She wasn't named Dusty then, of course. Uh, but this um, a stray cat was uh, living outside somewhere, I believe, in the west part of Pierrefonds. And there was a woman feeding her, but she had no intention of taking her in. My name's Ursula Lord. I'm the founder director of Cause for Paws Feline Rescue. And one snowy night in December 2018, she found Dusty. Or rather, Dusty found her. And I said that I'd be happy to take her into the rescue. The first night she came to my place, she sang her way all the way through. From the car, up the stairs, and into my small studio apartment in the Plateau Mont-Royal. She was clearly terrified. And she only stopped meowing to dart under my bed when we opened up her cage. Come back, come back, come back. It took a bit of coaxing and a whole can of tuna. But soon, she was purring and eating from my hands, rolling onto her back and demanding belly rubs. As for me, it was love at first sight. It's not uncommon. Right. Sorry, you foster failed. You were her foster the next... Yeah. <laughs> it's true. I couldn't bear to say goodbye, to send her off to a forever home. So instead, I kept her, which makes me a foster fail. I, I, I would really be lying if I told her I was too surprised in your case. <laughs> Why do you say that? Because it was kind of obvious at the beginning that you had a connection with each other. That what made it um, really apparent for you. That there was uh, this relationship just came out to you like that. I was there too. Just ignored yeah. me. <laughs> Dusty couldn't get enough of me either. According to Ursula, Dusty's needy behavior might have to do with how she came to be out on the streets. This was a cat who clearly must have been an abandoned pet, was not feral born, and, and craved human affection, or she wouldn't have come out that quickly. An adult cat, if she'd been feral-born, the odds of her being able to be socialized would be exceptionally low. Mm. She must have been abandoned. Because it seems to me she has a fear of being abandoned again. Mm. You know, so that when you go out, she worries, and then when you come back, she's very relieved. That's what you're describing to me? Yeah, yeah, that's Mm -hmm. right. So it means she's a cat that's extremely socialized to humans. Mm. You know, Mm. a feral cat, a feral-born, would tend not to have a reaction like that. Despite her own anxieties, as the days of lockdown turned into weeks and months, Dusty became kind of a therapy cat. A purring machine, always up for a cuddle if you're feeling worried, sad, anxious about all the bad news in the world. With so much uncertainty in our lives, it felt good to know that this little creature trusts us to keep her safe with all of her little heart. And her demands for affection? A reminder to take a moment Just a second to squeeze her tight and be thankful. She's become such an important part of our pandemic lives that the man who didn't even have a plant now has conversations with the cat. Well, I mean as much as you can have with a cat. I definitely started to talk to Dusty a lot more. um, Like, how's your day going? And then she'll meow. And, you know, if she sounds sad, I'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, it's a a tough time for everybody, you know. So um, she, or or about food. (laughs) It's a tough time for everybody. 
Yeah, it is. It is a tough time for everybody. Um, I mean, for Dusty, it's probably some of the best time of her life, I guess, after being, I guess, like abandoned with her first owner and then, you know, being here and having this nice uh, uh, big apartment to run around in and always have her humans. Um, of course, whenever we do leave, she still goes crazy when we come back. Admittedly, she might be acting a bit regal and entitled around the house. Colin and I, we joke that it's Dusty's apartment. We just live in it. Though sometimes it's kind of true. I have a lot of work to do, Dusty. Dusty doesn't care. I have an office chair, and whenever I stand up, if she's like anywhere even close, she'll kind of like 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 sneak over. And then if I like look over my shoulder and to go sit down, and then she's already in the chair. And she always does the same kind of pose, just kind of like uses her little paws to kind of make a little like fake like nest on on the chair, and starts purring a bunch and just plops down. And it looks very satisfied and almost immediately falls asleep. And you can't kick her out. Uh, Well, I mean, I do sometimes if I have a lot of work to do. It turns out we're not the only ones whose lives have been changed by Dusty Springfield, the singing cat. My downstairs neighbor, Mimi, moved in in the summer, in the middle of the lockdown, and the end of a relationship. Like, so when you first moved in, you Before we met, she was trying to figure out who her upstairs neighbors were. Yes, I was. And you can tell, you know, you learn about the weight of, you know, the footsteps. And I'm like, okay, so that's clearly a man, that's a girl, and these other footsteps are, I think, a toddler. Yes, she thought Dusty was a full-on child. And I'm like, oh, and it's a very jumpy toddler. And it's, you know, a scurrying toddler. And that was around the time I was here with my sister. We were cleaning out the apartment, and we would both stop and just look up at the ceiling, and list, you know, hearing this child running around. We're like, why are we not hearing then the parents' footsteps chasing after him? Because that's not normal speed for this child. It was when we went downstairs with a box of muffins to say hello that Mimi learned we had a cat, not a boisterous rug rat. Dusty's pitter-patters became a permanent fixture of Mimi's days. Fortunately, when she welcomed. I was uh, just around COVID time. I was separating and moving. You know, so there were a lot of what, you know, very stressful things happening in my life. And then I was, I also didn't know what it would be like to live alone uh, and start a new life on my own. And I was afraid of loneliness. And honestly, I haven't felt lonely. And I and your cat has a lot to do with it because of her noises. I I welcome these noises. <laughs> I really do. I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been it's been great. It's a perfect relationship. It's not somebody who's in my life all the time, right? So I still get to learn to be to live alone, but also not feel like I'm alone because it feels like there's someone else around, right? right? So she's helped me not feel lonely. Now the world is opening up again a little more, and gradually I've been returning to the office a few half days at a time. I think the fact that Colin and I were constantly around during lockdown has eased Dusty's fear of abandonment. Don't get me wrong, she still yells when I get home. I'm her human, after all, and lately I keep running off. Colin still works from home. He says while I'm gone, Dusty curls up on my shoes or my bag. She's needy, my cat but I don't begrudge it one bit. Even if she's a lot sometimes, 
She got me through the lockdown. Now it's my job to make sure she's safe and happy in a cozy home. No matter what happens in the world outside. Jennifer Yoon, Dusty Springfield. That piece was produced by Jennifer Yoon and Kevin Ball. And now that you've heard so much from Dusty, you can see her too. To witness the mighty fine fluff ball, head to our website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject. Also, how are your furry footstools doing during the pandemic? We'd love to see photos of your pets and hear about how you've been getting on with them. Share your photos on our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com slash docproject. I've already posted a photo of my dog, Tusk, in one of the rare moments where, instead of stalking me, he's sleeping. I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretab. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretab. I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, you... That's the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Bob Keating's dog Layla is about 98 years old, in people years, 14 in dog. Layla's a Jack Russell Chihuahua mix. Bob got her three years ago when his daughter joined an SPCA camp in Nelson, B.C., where Bob and now Layla live. And when Layla became part of the family, Bob saw an opportunity. Bob had been volunteering at the Mountain Lake Seniors Community. This is Bob. I volunteered at the home before the pandemic cut off those kinds of visits. Originally, the plan was to read to seniors there. And in fact, I got halfway through a novel, Little Big Man, one of my favorite Westerns, highly recommended. It's told through the eyes of a senior. That's why I picked it. But the readings I found didn't really go over that well. They weren't that engaged. So he came up with an alternative. Take Layla instead. She had to pass this temperament test that I, they have at the SPCA, which she did with flying colors. Then I began taking Layla on every visit. She actually lets me cradle her like a football. So in I'd go with Layla. And she turned out to be a much bigger draw than any novel I could read. And that changed things. There are three security keypads and heavy swinging doors to get me into Mountain Lake Seniors community. Hi, Elsie. And who is this? This is Layla. Layla. Oh, you're beautiful, aren't you? Layla is a hit with the seniors right from that first visit. Oh, sweetheart. Especially in the long-term care wing, where most residents have some degree of dementia and often struggle with words. Oh, you're shaking. How come? She calls no, she's a bit of chihuahua in her, so she's mostly Jack Russell with some chihuahua, and they tend to oh, shake. Oh, yeah. Don't shake, baby. Layla, I find, draws those words out. I've had many dogs in my life. What kind, Elsie? 
Oh, Black Labrador, Gold Labrador. I can't think of the names anymore. But they were all good dogs. But soon, it wasn't just Layla who was drawing out words. It was Bob. On one of my visits, an activity coordinator, Sandra, pulls me aside and asks if I'll listen to the life story of a resident in the assisted living wing. Perhaps take notes and write it down so she'll have it for her family. I agree. And that's how I meet Jean Grevstad, by asking her questions about her long life. The first one's always the easiest. What's your name? (laughs) Jean, J-E-A-N, Grevstad. G-R-E-V-S-T-A-D. Middle name, Kathleen. Jean is slightly stooped with one bad knee and difficulty hearing without her hearing aids in. But for a 91-year-old, she's in really good physical shape. We decide we're going to meet every Wednesday in the activity room. I listen to these stories of her life. I go back and type them up later and bring them to her the following week for revision and editing. Kathleen. Kathleen. With a K or a C? K. How old are you, Jean? I'm 91, coming on 92 in September. Jean has a sharp recollection of the past. Sometimes she brings pictures and documents from her life to our afternoon meetings. That's important to me because her story goes way back, back to the Depression on the prairies. Her first memory is sitting in the back seat of her parents' car, and they're rumbling across those prairies. I had a boy horse, and I held it out the window, and his mane and tail were flying out. That's what I remember. I only taped that first meeting, which I regret now, because Jean's story is really interesting, and she has this funny, matter-of-fact way of telling it to me. Her story would also become relevant months later in ways neither of us could possibly imagine. And Jean would also become my friend. So Bob keeps going back every week to visit Jean, taking Layla, taking notes until he compiles a 20-page life story, a story that spans almost a century, with an equal measure of success and sadness. Because Bob didn't record Jean, actor Lindsay Clegg will be her voice. My first memory is a vivid one. I'm in the back seat of my parents' car, puttering through southern Saskatchewan on a journey from Assiniboia to Lac Verte, A long day's journey back then. It's the height of the Depression, and my parents are fleeing the dust and grasshoppers devastating the southern prairies for the relatively lush central part of the province. Bob Keating will take it from here. I'm going to tell you the story of Jean Grebstadt as she told it to me over the spring and summer of 2019. Jean Kathleen Grebstad came into this world on September 23, 1927, though she didn't really truly know where she was born until many, many years later. And Jean, by the way, is not her birth name, but we're going to get to that. Her parents were Elsie and Ernest Pickens, and after the First World War, they took up the federal government's offer of free land to farm in southern Saskatchewan. Drought 
and grasshoppers then chase them to another farm in the north outside the tiny village of Lac Vert. Their little girl sitting in the back seat, playing with a toy horse. The homestead we rolled into in Lac Vert was less grand than the place they'd built up back in Assiniboia. The buildings were weather-worn and unpainted, but that was typical. Any place you saw with a postcard red barn and nicely painted home, you naturally pegged it as being owned by rich people who could afford paint and the time to work with it. Of course, the privy was outside, and there were no luxuries like running water in the house. That, too, was for the rich and almost unheard of in rural Saskatchewan. Jean had a happy yet somewhat lonely life as a child on the farm. They were poor by today's standards, eating largely what they grew, wearing what her mother hand sewed, but that was pretty typical. It was a simple, difficult life, but I don't remember thinking we were poor or in any way missed out on things. My only complaint was loneliness. I could not understand at the time why I was an only child with the closest neighbors miles away. Most young farm families had herds of children who looked after each other, helped raise one another, and were groomed to one day take over the farm. Out there, miles from Lacvert, I was the only person under ten. To amuse myself, I'd dress up the smaller farm animals, or my trusted dog, Ben. Jean attended a one-room schoolhouse out there on the prairies often being pulled into that schoolhouse in a kind of sleigh fashioned by her father, and then later riding in on her own horse. She was attentive and shy, but she loved music. Her life was simple, comfortable, and comforting. Safe, I'd say. But that all changed when her cousin visited the farm in the 1930s, upending what Jean thought were certainties in this world. When I was about 10 years old, something happened that altered how I looked at life and viewed my family. In fact, it shattered my little world. My mother's cousin, Melinda, was visiting from somewhere, and I was outside playing with her daughter, who would have been about the same age as me. We got into some kind of disagreement the way children do, and nasty words were exchanged. Finally, in disgust, this girl said to me, "'I'd go tell your mother.' but that is not your real mother, or something to that effect. I was floored by the statement. I ran inside immediately and put the accusation to my mother. Was she not my real mother and father not my father? My mother told me the truth, that I had been adopted, was born in Regina, and kept at the Salvation Army Hospital, until I was taken home by her and the man I believed up until then to be my biological father. My mother was tender and understanding, telling me this shocking fact, and asked if I wanted to connect with my real mother. I said no. My adopted mother and father had been good to me and raised me the best they could in hard times. I thought at the time reconnecting with a completely different family would be a slap in the face to them. It's a decision I regret to this day. Jean Kathleen Grevstad, as it turns out, 
was born Daphne Klingham to an Irish woman named Rebecca Klingham and her boyfriend, Billy Morrison. Years later, Jean tried to track them down, but by that time they were long dead and had no other children together. But Jean's biological mother did end up starting a family with another man, and Jean's half-sisters would later have a role to play in her life. That couple that adopted Jean continued to eke out a living there on the prairies, but, but barely. When Jean was a teenager, times were tough, and they had to move into a neighboring town. Then, life changed for a second time. My father got a job in Pleasantdale, building grain elevators to hold the crops, as mechanized farming began to take over from horse and plow. There was always a new elevator that needed to be built, or an old one somewhere in need of repair. But the job would not last long. My father died suddenly at age 50. One night, his hand flopped across my mother's chest. Oh, Elsie, he moaned the final words of Ernie Pickens. He always had heart troubles. I can clearly remember my father pacing the floor, clutching his chest in pain. I suspect it was his heart that kept him out of World War I when he was of fighting age. He died in 1945, the year the next Great War ended. Jean was now the only child of a single mother, long before people even used such a term. Her mother, Elsie, moved into town and took over a Chinese restaurant for a time, which were almost as common back then as those grain elevators on the prairies. But what do you do with your teenage daughter? Elsie Pickens had a practical solution. (laughs) She sent me off to Prince Albert to live with a husband and his infirm wife. I cooked her breakfast and did some light cleaning for my room and board while I took business classes at the Pine City Business College in the booming city of Prince Albert. Even back then, which was the cusp of the 1950s, Prince Albert had a population of 20,000 or so people. Imagine the thrill for a prairie girl who hadn't lived in a town big enough to support a movie theater. In fact, I remember my first movie, the cartoon Bambi. It was such a thrill, until Bambi's mother died, which caused all us kids to sob into our popcorn. Even Walt Disney didn't spare us the harshness of life. Nice little dog. Mm -hmm. Layla's come say hello. I carry on with my visits to Mountain Lake, bringing along Layla always popping over to listen to Jean for a half hour or so first and taking notes. I find myself looking forward to these visits. I was asked to record Jean as a favor, but it's become anything but a chore. I'm really enjoying her story and how she tells it to me. These small details of a life, of another era, like how men would travel farm to farm, helping bring in the harvest by hand. They live simply yet happily, without any of the conveniences we take for granted. I must have spoken to Jean a couple dozen times, and with each visit I find that new memories flood back to her. At times I even sense Jean surprised by these details of her life that she recalls. My father scorned organized religion, 
And though my mother had been a churchgoer in her life, she didn't have me baptized. And now I wanted to be a full-fledged member of the tidy white church in the main part of town. So my mother organized the ceremony, which meant a minister had to come from outside the area. And on the appointed day, sure enough, a horse and buggy was seen coming toward our home in Pleasantdale. The driver of that buggy shocked us all. It was a woman, a slender, bespectacled woman named Lydia Grutchie. Lydia Grutchie, it turns out, was a French-born Canadian and also happened to be the first woman ordained to the United Church of Canada. That made an exciting day even more thrilling. Being baptized, along with a woman minister performing the ceremony. What an important day. Jean thrived in Prince Albert, working and going to school. She graduated in the early 1950s and got a job in a bank. I became an entry-level draft clerk, which primarily meant drawing up draft checks for companies to pay their employees with. A businessman would come into the bank and approach the counter requesting a draft. The teller, almost always a man back then, would shoot his hand into the air and say, Draft! It was my job to get the particulars and draw up that draft check, which would be signed off by the teller. I had other clerical roles, but drawing up those drafts seemed to be the most critical, since all those workers were depending on my work to get paid. Jean worked all over the prairies in financial institutions, or often doing books for big companies. It was during this time she met Bill Grevstedt. Bill's from Winnipeg, 22 at the time, and four years younger than Jean. Five of the Grevstedt brothers were in the Air Force, and she thought Bill looked dashing in his uniform. They married, had two daughters, and Jean became a stay-at-home mother for a while. They moved all over eastern Canada for her husband's career. He shifted from the military to sales jobs. But times were often tough again for Jean, and eventually they moved back to Winnipeg, and Jean went into banking full-time. I don't want to go on about it, but Bill was a drinker, as so many men were back in the 50s and 60s. You could still drink at work back then, and many of the salespeople in particular were expected to keep a bottle in their desk drawer. Not a healthy lifestyle, and it was hard on our family. With all that moving and the problem drinking... I often brought home the paycheck. Jean and Bill divorced, and she became a single mother, like her mother before her. And like her mother, she built a life on her own, rising up in banking when it was rare for a woman to reach management. I had all kinds of jobs with the bank, eventually becoming the first woman manager for branches in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Northwest Ontario. Of course... I still didn't make as much as the male managers, and, as a woman, wasn't even eligible for a pension. This was still very much a man's world. Jean helped raise a second family with a man named Barry, who had three kids. They separated after 13 years. She kept in touch, though, until he died in a senior's home in Winnipeg. But the biggest pain of her life was the loss of one of her daughters. Lisa was diagnosed with cancer, and died in 2009. It was an awful time for her and Mark, and a terrible time for me as well. A mother is not supposed to outlive her children. 
but Lisa was taken from us at 53. I don't want to talk too much about that. Some scars never heal. As she pushed into her 80s, life on the prairies grew difficult for Jean. She began having health problems, and all of her family was like 2,000 kilometers away in Nelson, B.C. So they decided to move her to Nelson, and Jean got an apartment at Mountain Lake. She thrived there. Then something wonderful happened. In her 80s, Jean connected with her birth family. I heard a program on CBC Radio about a company called Lynx that helped people find their original birth parents. I contacted Lynx, and they began looking on my behalf. A short time later, I got a call from a young woman I'd never met who said, I think you are my aunt. As fate would have it, my sisters and their children were looking for me, too. They'd seen their mother's records and were astounded to find she had another daughter when she was young. That was me. They've become a part of my life here at Mountain Lake, and though they are scattered all around Western Canada, they came to my 90th birthday here in Nelson. This is where I will live out my life, happily with family and friends nearby. Yes, I miss the beauty of the prairies, but I'm surprised how much I've grown to enjoy my mountain home. Every week, Jean and I sit around a small table in the activity room at Mountain Lake, a place where residents play cards and sit on comfortable couches and watch a big screen TV. While we work, seniors come and go and want to pet Layla. Uh, you can lick my forehead if you like. Uh, we'd spoil you. Oh, we would spoil you. You're used to royal treatment. <laughs> After three months of these visits, I finish taking down Jean's story. I bind it together and type it out and put it in a book for her, which is about 20 pages long. I put a prairie scene of grain elevators on the cover. Jean is just thrilled with this final version, and we joke how this is going to become a bestseller one day. Whenever I do visit Mountain Lake, I pop over to see if Jean is there sitting in her favorite chair, and we chat. She asked me about my life and the outside world because Jean does stay on top of world events and what's going on outside there beyond Mountain Lake. She seems healthy and happy. Life goes on as usual for both of us until one day it doesn't. Enough is enough. Go home and stay home. A stern warning from the Prime Minister. Take social distancing seriously or else. The virus comes on so fast, it's hard to process just how quickly things are changing. People are stockpiling food. Whole cities are shutting down. There are no known cases where we live, but I know the first place to close will be Mountain Lake, Jean's home. So I rush over to Mountain Lake because I know it will be my last visit for a long while. And I want to see Jean, my friend. Can we get all visitors to sign, please? When I reach Mountain Lake, there's an odd calmness to the place. Outside, grocery store shelves are stripped bare of toilet paper, and downtown is pretty much deserted. 
The only thing new here is this sign-in protocol. The seniors band, in fact, is setting up for an afternoon concert, just like they do every Wednesday. And that is where I find Jean, waiting to sing along with her friends. Jean doesn't understand all the fuss and thinks people are acting irrational. Blown out of proportion, like relative to the population. Why do you say that? Seems to me that's not that great an amount in relation to the number of people. That's all. My grandson is a little anxious because he recently got married in Uganda, but he came uh, came back. But you're not concerned, Jean? Well, I'm concerned. I'm not going crazy buying up toilet paper. <laughs> And that's the last time I hear Jean speak. Roll the dice. Number two. I am well known for my haunting cry. When am I usually silent? Spring, summer, fall, or winter? At Jasmine Lysenko's rural home outside Nelson, Jasmine and her daughter Umajean play a card trivia game. Eight-year-old Umajean has a cold, so they've decided to stay inside. Jasmine Lysenko is Jean's granddaughter, and Uma Jean, her great-granddaughter, named after Jean. Jasmine helped bring her grandmother here to BC about four years ago. Back then, Jean was not in good health. She was in and out of hospital, and there in Winnipeg, she had no family to keep an eye on her. What happened when she moved here to Nelson is she started to be really healthy again. Like, she had one fall in the beginning and a hospital stay, and then... She just started to get healthier and healthier, and um, she was thriving. And I think it was really, to me, that was really a testament to that mind-body connection, you know, like social relationships being such a part of, for seniors especially, keeping them strong and healthy. Jasmine says Jean thrived at Mountain Lake and made new friends really quickly. She did make a home at Mountain Lake. It was a good place for her to be. She made friends there. They have a cool community of the residents up there, and they help each other out, and they're kind of like family. Since Jean's immediate family is close by in Nelson, they'd visit three or four times a week. We had every family event there. We had our Christmases there, every birthday. Every person in the family is like, oh, we're meeting at Jean's. So we would have our, all of our family celebrations happened there at her small apartment. COVID-19, of course, brought an end to all that. Not just family visits, but visits by outsiders or volunteers like me. And even gatherings within the seniors' community were frowned on. Seniors were locked down more than the rest of us for their own protection. But Jasmine says it took a toll. They had no kids, no singing, no music, no visitors, and then some of their programming run by volunteers wasn't happening anymore either. So it wasn't just the family visits that stopped, but it was a lot of their their life enrichment, they call it up there, but their fun, really. All their fun's been taken away. They're sad. They're lonely. And, you know, those things that lift people up and make them happy, music and children, pets, hugs, and humorous conversations that she would have with people like you. Jasmine says they phoned Jean's apartment most days to check in because they sensed she was growing lonely. 
Those first weeks of the pandemic, much of the world seemed eerily silent and deserted. Mountain Lake was no different. And Jasmine says Jean and the others suffered. When I would go to deliver Jean's groceries, there would be a few people wandering around outside in the parking lot because there are the people who are more mobile or allowed out. They were getting, yeah, just desultory, just kind of wandering around and saying, like, we would talk about it. They were saying, we're really lonely. By Mother's Day, British Columbia and the rest of Canada began to loosen the lockdown. Family could again visit Mountain Lake, but direct contact with residents was discouraged. Jasmine and her family began organizing what they called balcony visits. They'd stand outside Jean's second-floor apartment and shout to her. Sometimes, Jasmine would play the ukulele. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I we would try to make it as fun as we could, but the, the balcony visits got harder and harder. You know, as she started to kind of decline, she didn't want to come out to the balcony anymore. You know, she would say, oh, my legs hurt too much, or I just can't make the trip from my room to the balcony. By summer, Jasmine's family could take Jean for appointments and visit under strict conditions. There were masks and rules about touching. I was told to stay away completely and couldn't even drop Layla off for a visit. I miss my friends at Mountain Lake, and especially Jean. We all made, and continue to make, sacrifices to keep ourselves and others safe. But for Jean, those sacrifices took an additional toll. By July, Jasmine says her grandmother's health had seriously declined, but Jean, like so many people her age, was not one to complain. Jasmine recalls one final doctor's visit at the beginning of August. She tried to stick with protocol. She wore her mask, and I wore my mask, and we ate lunch in my car afterwards because I knew she'd missed lunch. And then I took her back. I didn't hug her because I wanted to be responsible. And we were both really sad when I dropped her off. And um, the nurse told me that she sat outside for a long time after that. She didn't want to come in. She just sat there. And I knew that she was sad. And I was sad. And then she passed away a few days later. And I was really mad that I didn't just give her a hug. Jean Kathleen Grevsted left this world August 14th, 2020. She died from a stroke at Kootenay Lake Hospital. Sandra at Mountain Lake, the woman who asked me to record Jean's life story, emailed me to tell me the news. I sat at my desk, like Jean sitting on that bench outside, very still and sad, trying to figure out if there's anything I could do. I had Jean's life story, the story of a vibrant, independent prairie feminist, and I didn't want it just to sit there in my computer. I wanted to tell her story on the radio because I knew Jean and so many seniors like her were alone because of COVID, and there could be others with the same fate. Jean's granddaughter, Jasmine, says she has no doubt loneliness played a huge role in her grandmother's death. Jean had lost the will to live, and her doctor agrees. I think she had a few medical issues when she arrived. Um, always a really robust and colorful woman, though, I'd say. And uh, whatever issues she did arrive with uh, kind of smoothed themselves out. 
Dr. Kevin McKechnie is a family physician who specializes in seniors' care. He's got a couple dozen patients at Mountain Lake and many others in the community. He became Jean's doctor right after she arrived in Nelson. Jean improved largely because she came back here where she was surrounded by, by family continually. Um, you know, I think it was her, her time with her family and the care that her family was able to provide her that really made the difference, to be honest. I don't think it's uh, just purely a coincidence that I'm seeing so many of my elderly patients having deteriorated rapidly over the course of the past uh, several months during COVID. What do you do about that? We want to keep people out of there to keep the COVID out, and yet... Yeah, it's, I, I think it's, it's just a terrible, a terrible irony and a really challenging situation. I mean, I, I completely understand the, the reasons uh, for the isolation and wanting to protect them. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't know. I, I think we're doing that population a great disservice. Um, we, we're really taking away what I would call their, uh, their most important medicine and not really leaving them a lot to live for. I, I, I don't know what you do. Yeah, you're devil, damned if you do, damned if you don't, aren't yeah, you? Ex- exactly. Most, most of the folks um, in those situations that I've spoken to have, have told me, you know, in a heartbeat, they would, be, they would be happy to shave a few months off of their life if it meant they could spend more time with their families. Um, but unfortunately, um, that's not a trade they're allowed to make. Jasmine and her family don't blame Mountain Lake for Jean's decline in any way. They were doing what they thought was best to protect all the seniors in the home. And they were following provincial protocols, which changed rapidly in a strange, uncertain time. And the strategy worked here. COVID-19 was kept out of places like Mountain Lake after sweeping through facilities in Ontario and Quebec and Vancouver with, with devastating effect. Still, Jasmine thinks there's a cost to keeping the elderly away from family or other visitors, and that cost is steep. I miss Grandma Jean a lot. I feel at peace now with her passing and where she's at. When I think about the months leading up to her death, I feel very sad, and I feel angry that we'd had that time stolen from us by this pandemic, by the health authorities' response to the pandemic. I don't know who I was angry at. I was just really angry. Jasmine says she's got past that anger now. Her grandmother lived a long, full life. But the end came at a terrible and lonely time for Jean, when she needed the contact of family and friends most. She wants others to hear her grandmother's story, because she hopes, as a society, we strike a better balance, keeping our seniors safe, but also realizing the damage isolation does. I think that um, Jean was, her passing was as a result of her being a casualty of the pandemic. And I think it really says a lot about modern society's relationship with death, you know, to try and make the life as long as possible, quantity over quality, without necessarily considering the quality of somebody's life. Jean had a lot to say about the quality of her life. She was well aware she had a good life, even well into her 90s. Jean told me she was pretty sure she had more good years to come. I'm 91 at the writing of this story. 
and soon to be 92, but in strong enough health that I don't expect to depart this world any time soon. I have three lovely grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. I have a home now in Nelson where it is peaceful and beautiful. It's been quite a ride. And I like to think a life well-lived. Jean Kathleen Grevstad That Doc was produced by Bob Keating. It was edited by Allison Cook with me, A.C. Rowe. Jean Grevsted was read by Lindsay Clegg. On our website, you can see incredible black and white photos of a young Jean, as well as pictures of Jean celebrating her last birthday at the seniors' home when she turned 92. You can also read Bob's account of Jean's life as she told it to him. With the permission of her family, we've embedded the whole 20-page PDF on our website. That's cbc.ca slash docproject. There, you can also see photos of Layla. She doesn't look a day over 40 in human years. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Julia Poggle, Kevin Ball, Tanera McLean, Mark Apollonio, and me. Althea Manassin is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. And our executive producer is Joan Melanson. Please, as always, before you go, take a moment to rate and review us wherever you're listening, if you can. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.